Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Amanda Borchel-Dan here with our diplomatic correspondent, Lisa Berman, and features writer, Rene Gert-Zand. Hello to you both. Hi, Amanda. Good morning. We have a lot to cover today. Laser will discuss recent events at the United Nations and a plan to aid Ukraine. And in the second half of the program, Rene will tell us about a chilling Nazi plan to sterilize Jewish women, as well as a duo of recommended books. But first, a short break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. Laser, Renee, you know how we're always saying that we should get together sometime out of work? Well, next week, we have a great opportunity. As part of our year-long TOI at 10 festive events, the Times of Israel is hosting a rare English-language subtitle screening of Cinema Sabaya, followed by a conversation with its director. It's on December 6th at Jerusalem's Yes Planet. There's a link in the program notes to purchase tickets. So you guys going to join me? Absolutely. I'll be there. Excellent. See you there. Now, Laser, turning to you, yesterday marked 75 years to Kaftet bin November, which is the day that the UN General Assembly voted in favor of a resolution that adopted the plan for partitioning Eretz Israel back in 1947. Yesterday, our New York correspondent, Luke Tress, reported that at the UN headquarters in New York, there was a different kind of day, an annual event marking the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. So, Laser, tell us what else is on the horizon at the UN. There is a vote coming up that we can tell is certainly something that worries Israeli leaders. There was a vote on November 11th in one of the UN committees, the fourth committee, um, which asked the International Court of Justice in The Hague to um, render an urgent advisory opinion on the conflict. And Israel um, did what they could to get as many countries as possible to vote against it. This measure passed 98 in favor, 17 opposed, and 52 abstentions. So the, the result wasn't terrible for Israel, but it passed. That means it went to the General Assembly plenum, and it will be voted on at some point in December. Now, this is something that Israel is working on intensively behind the scenes to stymie. And as part of that effort, um, Prime Minister Lapid sent a letter to world leaders this week. And uh, he, the first thing he asked was for them to pressure the Palestinians to give up this push. His main pitch was 
uh, the international community and Israel and the Palestinians have agreed that negotiations, direct negotiations, are the way to uh, solve this conflict. And this violates the principles. This is a unilateral measure that violates the principles um, of direct negotiations. And the second thing you said, if the Palestinians continue in this push, and it is certainly assumed that they will, then that they would uh, vote against it. And this letter was sent to um, to Israel's allies around the world. Uh, more than 50 nations received this letter, some of them in Europe, partners like the United Kingdom, France, who has not always been helpful in international bodies, Croatia, Romania, the Netherlands, Slovakia, Latvia, whose president was in the country this week, and then countries around the world, Uruguay, Peru, Vietnam. So more than 50 in total. An interesting side question here is whether Ukraine will support this measure. They really angered Israel in November by supporting the fourth committee vote. And I spoke to uh, Ukrainian officials yesterday. They said, we don't even know when the vote is. Um, so they really didn't want to commit one way or the other and indicate which way they were going. But that is certainly something that we will have to watch. Laser, have you heard any other response from any other countries? It's been muted. Um, I think countries are, are, are studying this letter. Um, and, you know, this is a time where, the, you know, today and tomorrow where I can start reaching out to countries and, and trying to, try to figure out whether anyone, um, this is going to move them, whether they're going to go beyond voting against the measure and actually try to pressure the Palestinians, because that is uh, certainly an active role to play, which not every country will necessarily want to. Again, this is something that we know is concerning for Israel. The ICJ opinion would not uh, have any direct binding effect on Israel, but it's certainly an important moral one, and it could lead to other countries and other international organizations pointing at it as justification for um, calling Israel's presence in the West Bank an illegal occupation and even a war crime. Okay, Laser, thanks for that. Now, let's turn back to Ukraine and global efforts to ease the economic plight of the country some nine months into the Russian invasion. Earlier this week, you wrote about the possibility of Israel joining the Grain for Ukraine program. So what's happening here? There was some confusion, to say the least. Yes, yeah, so it, I think it's important to contextualize this. We're marking the uh, 90-year anniversary of the famine in 1932-1933 that the Ukrainians call the Holodomor. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it means uh, death, murder by starvation. It's a contraction um, in Ukrainian. And uh, around this anniversary, which uh, the Ukrainians are pushing to be recognized as a genocide, um President Zelensky launched this grain from Ukraine program. And tying into that, um, the use of uh, agricultural as, as a form of, of a war crime. So in this current conflict, Ukraine, which is a, certainly a breadbasket of Europe and, and of much of the Mediterranean basin, has been blocked at different times from exporting its grain. And, and using this anniversary, Zelensky launched this program, which has uh, rich Western nations buy the, buy the grain from Ukraine, where it will be shipped to uh, nations in Africa that, you know, that, that, that have, they're suffering from food insecurity and also to Yemen um, on the Arabian Peninsula. Um, that is something that Israel was invited to join during a conversation on Friday between Zelensky and President Herzog. But since then, Israeli officials tell me they haven't received any um, official invitation, any more explanation. And when I asked, uh, when I talked to Israeli officials in the foreign ministry and elsewhere, they say, you know, we're trying to get more information on it. We can't come to a decision yet. 
Um, so it's kind of a strange move by the Ukrainians to very publicly in this conversation between the two leaders talk about this invitation and then not do the practical steps needed uh, to help Israel make the decision. In general, Zelensky envisions uh, about 60 ships leaving Ukrainian ports um, for Africa by the end of the spring and carrying um, Ukrainian agriculture to, the, to those places. Again, it's a way to bring the focus back onto the uh, Soviet crimes against the Ukrainians and tying that in with Russian crimes against Ukrainians today. Okay. Laser, thank you for that. We'll go to a short break. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Hi, Renee. Thanks for joining us on the podcast again. It's my pleasure, Amanda. Let's start by discussing a study by University of Ottawa researcher Dr. Peggy Kleinplatz that suggests that the Nazis attempted to sterilize Jewish women in camps through the delivery of a hormonal food additive. What triggered the study? Dr. Kleinplatz was very you know, concerned about uh, stories that she had heard from Holocaust survivors, now women much older, in their 90s, about their not having been able to have the number of children that they wanted, the terrible problems with infertility they had after the war. And she uh, looked into the literature and found that no one had actually studied this. No one had asked the women. Of course, it was a time in the mid-20th century. People, people didn't speak openly about their sexuality, about their fertility. No one really took an interest. And it was only later in the these women's lives that they were finally able to tell someone about what had happened to them. It turns out that of the 93 women that Kleinplatz interviewed, average age 92.5, during their lifetimes, only 98% of the women uh, who were interviewed were unable to conceive or carry to term their desired number of children. Um, only 16% of them were able to carry more than two babies to term. The majority of them had only one or two children, and none of them had more than four live births. There was um, a very high rate of miscarriages and stillbirths among these women. 
it's just shocking to me that nobody had put the pieces of the puzzle together before this particular study. And in your piece, you talk about the women remembering a mysterious white powder being added to food. Tell us a little bit more about that. Right. So it has been documented that 98% of all women who were imprisoned in Auschwitz lost their periods immediately upon arrival. So that was suspicious. And uh, it was assumed that this was because of trauma and starvation. But Kleinplatz started to look at some other clues around this. She heard from many of the women. And she's not the only person who has heard this. There were other testimonies of women saying that the food, something was weird in the food, if you can even call it food, (laughs) in the camp. Um, there was powder floating on it. One woman who was who was forced to work in the kitchen spoke of Nazi guards bringing in some mysterious crystals that she had to pour into the food. The women called it brome or bromide. They weren't chemists, so they they had a name for it. But Kleinplatz surmises that these were exogenous sex hormones that the German scientists who who became uh, Nazis, who joined the Nazi party, had developed in Germany as early as the early uh, in the early thirties, and companies in Germany were manufacturing these exogenous hormones throughout the war. So she feels that put you know the if you put the puzzle pieces together, the manufacturer of the drugs, the stories of the women, plus the fact that in the Nuremberg trials there was documentation of the Nazis trying to come up with a way to mass sterilize women without the women knowing. So she sort of put the puzzle pieces together and came up with this uh, hypothesis that this is what happened and that not only were the women's, uh, you know, did they lose their periods in the camp, but this there was there were terrible repercussions on their fertility after the war. Okay, Renee, thanks for that. And there's, of course, a link in our program notes. With an abrupt change of topic, let's briefly talk about two new books that you've covered for us. The first is a new Paul Newman memoir that has come out 14 years after his death. So for you, what were some of the revelations in it? Well, first of all, the book is called The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. And there's a revelation right in the in the uh, title because Paul Newman thought of himself as a very ordinary person. He had a lot of self-doubt. You know, for the for someone who was one of the most handsome men ever to live uh, and, and one of the most successful actors of all time, he had uh, terrible feelings of worthlessness. He had a lot of doubt and guilt. Uh, and it's, it was really uh, surprising. Yeah, I would agree with that. And in reading your piece, which will shortly be published if it hasn't already, I was also struck by the element of Judaism in his life. It's not as though he was a religious person, but according at least to his memoir, he seemed to really self-identify, but for a kind of odd reason. Why was that? Yeah, I mean, throughout the book, which is based on um, transcripts, the newly discovered transcripts of interviews that he did over five years, he speaks about uh, being very proud to be Jewish, but it was 
really only in, in reaction to anti-Semitism. There were anti-Semitic attacks against him as a, as a child, as a young man. He's in high school, in the army. Uh, he actually beat someone up who, who used a racial, uh, who, you know, an anti-Jewish slur against him. Um, and then when he got to Hollywood, uh, there were, of course, suggestions that he should change his name from Paul Newman to something that sounded more waspy. Um, and even there was even a suggestion from uh, the very famous Jewish producer Sam Spiegel, which was sort of surprising. And uh, he refused. He said, "I I want to, you know, wear my Jewishness as a badge of honor." And uh, he always self-identified as Jewish, but he, he didn't raise his family Jewish. He himself did not have a bar mitzvah, as far as we can tell. The, uh, though he came from a, a family, his father was culturally Jewish, and I think he got a lot from that. So interesting. Now let's talk about a new Her Story book that delves into overlooked historical figures, the Rothschild women. What were some of your takeaways from this book? Um, well, this is um, a book called The Rothschild Women, The Untold Story of, of the World's Most Famous Dynasty by Natalie Livingstone. And um, it's a really comprehensive history written in a really engaging way about the women of the Rothschild family. And um, most people don't know anything about the women in the family. It's only the men who have sort of taken their place in history. Um, and this is because in his 1812 um, will, the founder of the family, Mayor Amschel Rothschild, explicitly forbade his female descendants or the wives of his male descendants from any share in the bank's wealth or in, in its decision-making. And that that just by by the fact of that, the women were relegated to the shadows of history. Um, and I learned that actually many of the Rothschild women were powerhouses in the family. They were political talents, they were sportswomen, they were scientists, they were artists, and many of the men's achievements would not have happened without the women behind them and, and sort of pulling the strings. And uh, this is especially the case with the the state of Israel and the Balfour Declaration, that if it weren't for some of the the Rothschild women, the Rothschild men would not have gotten behind Chaim Weizmann and Zionism. I found that just fascinating. And, and your piece and the book itself is just such a spectacular work that should have been written alongside the male histories obviously. But, you know, Baruch Hashem, at least it's being written now, right? Absolutely. Okay, Renee, thank you for joining me today. And remember, we're going to see each other on December 6th in Jerusalem screening of Cinema Sabaya. See you there. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.